Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties 2. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I love dogs and cats and the people who care about them. I'm here every week with authors and experts to expand our appreciation and our understanding of the ways that animals are part of our world. To hear other episodes of this show and other informative pet talk radio shows I co-host with top veterinarians and experts, please go to RadioPetLady.com. Dog Talk is a production of Pet Media Inc., which is solely responsible for its content. The Radio Pet Lady Network also produces the Dog Film Festival, which celebrates the love between dogs and their people and the rescue groups that bring them together, sponsored by the Petco Foundation. The festival is traveling to 12 destinations across the country, including East Hampton on August 2nd, and will be back in New York City with the second annual festival, October 15th. You can find more information at dogfilmfestival.com. This show is brought to you with the generous support of Waruva, a privately owned pet food company that uses people food to make food for cats and dogs in their family's human food facility. Pouches of their cats in the kitchen, their more economical BFF, best feline friend, and all varieties of canned Waruva for cats and little dogs are made with the same care and specifications used to make food for people. Waruva's owners want to feed your pets and their own dogs and rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa, for whom the company is named, with ingredients that are good enough for people to eat. I have a return visitor joining us today, Christine Kim, the remarkable social worker and filmmaker whose movie Myra and Prince is going to be traveling the country this year with the Dog Film Festival, who works with homeless people and pets. And then one of her colleagues, from Wisconsin, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, who does social work that is a bridge between veterinary medicine and social work for people experiencing homelessness, which I think is a really interesting way of putting it. The rest of us need to get a little more sensitive about this, and that's what I'm hoping that these interviews will help us do. And then Teresa Johnson will be here from the Kansas Lifeline Project, an extraordinary nonprofit doing rescue work in Kansas City that the Petco Foundation has introduced me to. So we have a whole show of do-gooders. Christine Kim, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Hello, Tracy. It's nice to be back. It's wonderful to to have a chance to stay in touch with you and learn of of other work that you're doing or other work that's being done around the country Mm -hmm. for people who are homeless or as Dr. William Giles describes it, experiencing homelessness and have pets. I know this has been a, a very big focus of yours. Your movie, Myra and Prince, is, is truly extraordinary, and I'm very excited to be sharing it with people in Los Angeles in June and Rochester in July and out in the Hamptons on August 2nd. So people will be able to see j- just how important it is, the bond between everyone and their pets, but, but may, maybe particularly people who have very little else. Where, where has your work taken you in the last year? Yeah, I have been spending a lot of time doing outreach and education on the topic of homelessness and animal companionship to different groups. Um, so the exhibition, My Dog is My Home, which is the larger umbrella project, which the film Myra and Prince is a part of, has been traveling a little bit, and it actually just recently came back from Brock University in St. Catharines, which is in Ontario, Canada. Wow. Um, the Yeah, it's been a really amazing journey, and I never expected that my dog is my home would travel that far, but the Social Justice Research Institute at Brock University was interested in what I was doing and bringing it to their students and faculty. Um, So a smaller version of the exhibition was taken to them, 
But even though it was a university-related event, we made sure that the exhibition was widely accessible and open to the public. So the exhibition was installed at a local cafe where anyone who was interested in seeing it could come and view it. And that was really important to me because I really love carrying out this broad mission to educate the public about the bond between homeless people and their animals, as well as the difficulties they face when they often have to choose between either accessing these life-saving services, like going into shelter or accessing soup kitchens and clinics, or they can forego all of those services and um, stay with their animals, which is what they often choose. Um, but I take special interest in educating social workers. Um, I find that when I talk with social workers, the discussion gets taken to a different level. Um, so, for example, I was recently able to do a presentation for the group Social Workers Advancing the Human-Animal Bond, which is an interest group of the New York City chapter of the NASW, and that's the largest national um, professional social, work, social workers association. And because we're all entering into the talk with a certain baseline understanding of the human-animal bond, I didn't really need to spend a lot of time talking about the positive aspects of the relationship right. between the homeless and their animals or justifying keeping the homeless people with their animals together. We all understood that. And so the conversation then shifts to what do we do about the difficulty people have accessing services and how do we affect change? Um, so that was really special. Now, there's an organization which I'm sure you're not just familiar with, but probably very active in, called HABRI, the Human Animal Bond mm -hmm. Research Institute. Is that its full name? And it, it's, it seems to be East Coast based, but I don't know that to be true. I just know that Green Chimneys, which is a quite extraordinary mm -hmm. um, residential facility for, for kids who need, who cannot uh, uh, do well at even at home, much less in a regular school, and where my mini donkeys mm -hmm. happen to have been donated and are part of their their life. Um, it, how is social workers advancing the human animal bond? Does it work along with Habri? Is Habri an organization? I know it has a lot of kind of high level people in in welfare, human and animal. Do you work mm -hmm. with them through them? Are they are they do they have similar interests? They do have similar interests, and I believe that some members, some founding members of Social Workers Advancing the Human-Animal Bond are also involved with Habri, and I know for sure there are some people, there's a, a strong connection to Green Chimneys. Um, but beyond that, I'm not, I'm not sure. Well, it's, it's great. Well, the reason I ask is because we know about all kinds of organizations by now doing mm -hmm. things to raise money and awareness with about cancer in dogs, for example. And some of them mm -hmm. seem to be vying for the same attention, the same dollars, the same research grants or abilities. And it's good to know that in this area of your concern, that, that there are other organizations or groups of people that might even overlap working towards similar, um, maybe complementary goals. It's, it's good to know that I think the more organizations, the more public awareness, the better, however it affects, yeah. you know, the humans, because... So much of what we talk about in this show has to do with how it affects the, the animals. And mm -hmm. my concern is that people not lose sight of the humans in the equation, whether it's the elderly, but particularly mm -hmm. when it's people who have such either total economic distress or leading, if in fact that's what leads them to homelessness, or that they are mm -hmm. with, without housing. Talk about the exhibition and the National Museum, because that's something that on the East Coast we don't know much about. And I know it was... Mm -hmm. Quite, quite um, 
successful in Los Angeles and is now having a new home. And, and I hope to have them involved in the film festival when it comes to Los Angeles in June. So explain a little to those who may not know about it. Sure. Well, the museum is a really unique organization. Um, it's the first of its kind dedicated to exploring the human-animal bond. Um, it is based in Los Angeles, but we do events elsewhere. Um, we're open to going anywhere that there is um, somebody interested in hosting us. So if anyone's interested in that, they can reach out to the museum. Um, right now, the museum is in a transition period. So our our initial home that was located on Melrose is closed, and we're relocating to a much bigger space in the Miracle Mile area, which would be great for us. It's great for people who um, kind of are visiting the Los Angeles area and happen to be in Miracle Mile, which is where all the other museums are located, and they can stumble across the museum and see all these wonderful educational exhibitions about animals and people. Um, it's also undergoing a rebranding, so... Um, from this point forward, we will be known as the Museum for Animals instead of the Museum of Animals. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. I think it, it speaks to our mission. Um, and so it's really about preserving and protecting animals and, and their environment. So um, it's much more action-based. So it's going to be called, or is now called, the Museum for Animals. But what about the, the human component of that? Yeah, I think um, the tagline, uh, connecting and protecting, speaks to the human element. Um, so connecting people to animals and, and exploring that positive relationship um, and then protecting protecting animals. And then also my role as a social worker also involved with the museum is kind of a special niche in that area. Like when I, when I say... Um, Museum for Animals, I'm speaking to both human and non-human animals. Ah. And I think that's, yeah, I think that's um, a mindset that a lot of the museum members kind of hold on to. It's, it's animals, both human and non-human. Well, I like that. So, it, I mean, a lot of social work, a lot of sociology, I guess, really more than social work, has to do with language, right? Has to do with the way we use it. So the use of the word animal to include human animals that's a, that, that's something I, I wasn't aware that you were were doing, and I think that's awfully interesting to, to make us just another animal, which really, at the end of the day, we are just another animal. We, we like to think that with our language and opposable thumb that somehow we're some other order of creature. But it's the Museum mm -hmm. for Animals, human and otherwise. Is that right? That's right. That's correct. Wow. Have you had people in your field, in the social work field, or even in the museum world, uh, take umbrage at that or kind of miss the point and weeks later go, well, wait a minute, what do you mean human animals? Is there any kind of consternation about that? Um, there is. I think <laughs> I think it's just not something that people really think about. Um, even people who, even people in the animal protection world. Um, yes. Yeah, so... So it's very common, and it's something that we are striving to kind of bring to the forefront of people's minds to break down that barrier between human and um, other animals, that we all are deserving of a life free of pain and suffering, um, and that we all deserve certain rights. Wow. That's absolutely wonderful, because I think that particularly when you have a museum, 
isn't one of the mm-hmm. points of a museum is to shake up people's thoughts and have them see things, new things, or see other things in a new way. So what a great uh, setting to have people yeah. question or wonder or rethink things. Uh, there, Myra, who is the the star of your documentary, Myra and Prince, who stayed in touch and who actually, I didn't understand why she or how she had become homeless, but those of you that remember hearing her interview on this show, and if you don't remember hearing it or you missed it, please go to radiopetlady.com, which is where the podcasts of all of this show live, and just type in Myra um, or Myra and Prince in the search bar, and you'll find the show in which I interviewed her. And it was extraordinary to me to, to, to discover that the reason or the way that she became homeless was because she had been a Las Vegas performer who was a Whitney Houston impersonator. And when Whitney Houston died, she had no more career. And there are just so many unexpected, inexplicable ways in which people's lives can just come to a grinding halt. And what's pretty exciting is that she's going to be singing a couple of Whitney Houston songs at the, the high tea pooch party at the VCA hospital in West Los Angeles before the film festival in June. I think it's it's kind of a wonderful full circle that with the help of social workers and the PATH shelter where the Petco Foundation had put up a shelter for, for pets attached to it and the work mm-hmm. of people like yourself that she has a home and she now has a second dog that she's brought into her life and she said she's happier than she's ever been and how extraordinary that she'll have a chance to sing that to people who otherwise would have no experience of what a homeless person with a dog might look like or be like or feel like, right? Right. She kind of breaks the mold as far as what people expect. Yes. And I have to tell you, she is, I keep in touch with Myra. That's part of, you know, the responsibility that I took up when I became a filmmaker. Like I keep relationships with the people that I um, involved in the project. And she is so, over the moon about being involved in the Los Angeles Dogs Film Festival and being able to share her talent as um, a Whitney Houston impersonator. She is such a great spokesperson for this issue because not only is she humble, but she is also, you know, a performer. Yes. (laughs) And that's what we need in a spokesperson is somebody who's approachable and compassionate and people can connect with, but somebody who's not afraid to really go out there and who kind of loves the spotlight in the stage as well humble and honest and yet proud proud of who she was proud of who she is you know life took that turn and there's no self-pity and it really does i think make us think there but for the grace of god go i except for that i don't have any talents like that so i wouldn't even have been able to fly as high as she flew when she was flying i I consider (laughs) it a real privilege truly a privilege to have this opportunity to give her a stage and a microphone because of Prince, because of her dog and the ways in which, you know, that old we who rescued whom and who, is it the dog rescuing us or vice versa. And sometimes that'll just be somebody leading a pretty nice, lush life and the dog fills mm-hmm. an emotional gap for them. But what about when it's your lifeline back to a back to a life? I mean, that's really quite right. something. She sent me um, just today. A, a little piece that that was, I guess, in in the in the newspaper in L.A. about the gas chamber and the city council and the museum. Can you tell us a little about that? Because it's pretty interesting in terms of a museum's part in the museum for animals. 
oh, I was actually not aware that there was something that came out in the newspaper. So Myra's ahead of the curb. Oh, good Even for her. Me. Well, I'll just, tell, I'll just tell you what it was. She sent me this little article, I, I guess your little press release article, saying mm-hmm. that the city council, I guess in Los Angeles, which is such a gigantic county, had mm-hmm. done away with the gas chamber, and yeah. they were donating the actual gas chamber to the museum to have as an artifact. And I thought, whoa, that's, uh, gonna, that's pretty sobering because now the only legal way to euthanize pets in Los Angeles County and in the more educated um, and humane parts of the world, or America at least, is by lethal mm-hmm. injection the way you would euthanize your own pet for usually medical or you know suffering reasons. And mm-hmm. the idea that a gas chamber would be something that nobody would ever know existed or wouldn't know what it looked like, I think that's mm-hmm. really sobering. I think that another reason that museums exist is for history, a sense of history and where we were, how we hope, how far we've come. And, and as mm-hmm. they say, not to have history repeat itself, right? Absolutely. And that's actually how the museum got started, was that the director was really interested in preserving animal protection history and kind of archiving and displaying for educational purposes where we've been. Um, so that is a huge, huge accomplishment. And um, it's going to be great, I think, for exhibitions and for educational exhibitions. It is because a lot of people have no knowledge of these mass gas chambers in which multiple dozens of dogs and cats were thrown all at once, some of them dying mm-hmm. quickly, some of them dying slowly, all right. in terror, often winding up in, in fights with each other during it. It was it was about as barbaric as such a thing can be. And, and there really are still states with gas chambers. So I think mm-hmm. it's it's very important that whatever attention can be given to where we where we've come from is important because those who lag behind uh w- will have a chance to point at that and go oh no not here not here let's do something about that uh, that's that's just shameful right right absolutely well i look forward to to talking to dr giles after you did did you study with him do you collaborate with him no, actually, I met him um, through an acquaintance, uh, somebody that I met at the um, the Veterinary Wellness and Social Work Summit at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. Wow. And that was, yeah, that was another conference that I was um, able to present at, and I was very honored to present at it because University of Tennessee um, in Knoxville is really a pioneer of the field of veterinary social work. I didn't know um, that. And- I didn't know that. It's a wonderful school. I've had a few vets on because they do great nutrition work. I had no idea they were at the forefront of this as well. Yes, they are. They really have some excellent faculty people on their on their team, which is, um, and they're leading the way for other social workers who are interested in incorporating animals into their practice. So uh, binary social work encompasses anywhere that social work and animals touch, and that includes animal-assisted therapy, the link between animal abuse and family violence, um, companion animal bereavement, and also, interestingly, the wellness of veterinarians. Wow. Um, Yeah, and I didn't know this prior to the conference, but um, veterinary students above above students from any other discipline have the highest suicide rate, which is a very sobering fact. Oh, my. It's a very stressful field. Um, There's a very high burnout rate. 
uh, veterinary schools are very competitive and, um, you know, students and professionals have access to, you know, veterinary medications, which, um, which can be used. Right. And so uh, it was a very powerful conference that I was honored to be a part of, but I was, I was presenting on um, some things that, some research that I did for my dog is my home. And um, the presentation went over very well. It was some research that I did for uh, a service fair that was uh, organized as a part of exhibition programming a couple years ago in downtown L.A. on Skid Row. And um, we offered free services like veterinary care and grooming and animal care supplies to the homeless people in downtown L.A. And before they entered into the service fair, they were asked to complete a survey with us, and we were able to extract some numbers from that, and I presented on that. Um, it went over very well, and I made some great contacts with people. And so from that, I'll be traveling the exhibition to different universities from the contacts that I made from that. And one of those contacts was Dr. Giles from wow. the University of this Wisconsin Madison. It's absolutely amazing. As we wrap up, are you familiar with the Downtown Dog Rescue? I am. They're an amazing group. Oh my I gosh, so I, I, they're yeah. extraordinary. And um, I, I just interviewed her a week ago, and they also are recipients of a Petco Foundation grant. So it's very exciting to find the people that I've found in in the in the pet in human related world, knowing each other, supporting each other, collaborating. It's very exciting. Christine Kim, thank you for coming back. And for all the amazing work you're doing around the country at, at one or other of the dog film festivals, I look forward to seeing you again. And obviously, any other movies you make, uh, you know, submission fee waived. Please send them my way. Oh, oh thank you so much, Tracy. It's Take great to care. be here and to talk with you. And Bye. You. And you. Bye-bye. We'll be right back after this quick word with Dr. William Giles. This show is made possible in part by Precious Cat Litter, owned by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian in Colorado who has created innovative litters for the health of all members of the family, with low-dust litters that allow everyone to breathe easier. Precious Cat's newest health monitor litter has broken new ground by allowing people to find the early signs of kidney disease in their kitty cats and intervene before damage is done, prolonging the quality and length of a cat's life. This show is also brought to you with the generous support of Nordic Naturals, omega-3 fish oil products that provide dogs and cats with the same premium quality omega-3 fish oils as for people. Research shows that even the best diets are deficient in the essential fatty acids found in omega-3 oils. However, all fish oil is not created equal. The Nordic Naturals difference is that their oil comes from Norway where they use responsibly sourced healthy wild fish and third-party testing to guarantee purity and freshness. I am back with Dr. William Giles, who's the founder and director of the Wise Cares program at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. It's a collaborative program between the schools of veterinary medicine and social work that provides social services, housing support, and veterinary medical care to pet owners experiencing homelessness and housing instability in Madison, Wisconsin. Dr. William, welcome to the show. I'm particularly taken with your use of the words experiencing homelessness, I think that makes language matters so much. And rather mm-hmm. than just discarding people as, oh, that's a homeless person, it's someone experiencing mm-hmm. a condition that could happen to anybody. I think you're someone who cares very much about language. Is that right? Um, it is. Actually, my uh, undergraduate degree before I switched to 
pursue a career in veterinary medicine was in linguistics. So uh, my ah. background with that field is something very near and dear to my heart, and I really appreciate that you you pulled out the significance of, of using phrasing differently. Very much so. And, and in fact, even though this may not be directly on the topic of people who don't have housing with mm-hmm. pets, I, I just want to speak about the signature that you have on your email because it's important to you as an educator to bring mm-hmm. this thought or this awareness to anyone who receives an email from you. And it really mm-hmm. intrigued me. And so if we have the privilege of having this platform to bring ideas mm-hmm. out, why not bring that I- idea out too? In your signature, after your name, in parentheses, you put he, his, and then you say something like, that's my preference, what's yours? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so, you know, as an educator, one of the um, major priorities that I exist with every day is making sure that our educational environments are a safe space for our students to really be able to bring their whole selves to their educational experience. Uh, the veterinary medical profession itself is is a pretty small profession as far as um, as far as professions go, and, and I think uh, there's a, a movement in a lot of folks, particularly coming out of the LGBT community within the profession and those of us that identify with that community to, to provide more platforms for education and, and really put ourselves out there and show students and other practitioners and our clients that, that we respect, you know, all identities and, and want to make sure people can fully embrace themselves when they interact with us. So my signature is is one pretty um, easy and explicit way to, to verbalize that, as you said, um, with everyone who gets an email from me. Uh, it's this idea of a personal gender pronoun, which is really um, just kind of running with the theory that every, every individual has a gender identity. Uh, some folks, that lines up with whatever gender they were assigned at birth. Um, and, and some individuals it doesn't. And when we can all make a declaration and a, a concrete statement of what our gender identity is and what gender pronouns we prefer to use, it's a really great way to just put out there that, that we're trying to create that welcoming environment. I, I think it's extraordinary how the social shift has taken place in America in such a short amount of time. I don't know mm-hmm. that film led the way. I'm not sure what led the way, but it has mm-hmm. become in such, in my view, such a short amount of time, this enormous sea change in um, an awareness and a sensitivity and a respectfulness. Now, I don't know, maybe in some other communities, people are just as nasty as they were years ago about gay people, <laughs> and maybe they still are. But in the in the things I read and the movies I see or the television shows I watch, it's like you get an education every day and you just open your mind. Uh, my, my goddaughter, who grew up in East Hampton, Mm-hmm. And um, either realized that she was uh, gay at 12 or or had realized it earlier and just told her parents and her brother and me and then the rest of her school and then became, you know, very rainbow and was the head of, I don't even know the name of the organizations in the Hamptons and on Long Island and went to um, where she's finishing up per, um, Purchase, SUNY Purchase, which she says is so gay that what do you call a freshman is straight. So it's gay, it's transgender. They apparently have people of every kind of outfit and, and gender identification, you know, dancing mm-hmm. on the road as the parents drive their, their freshmen in who are still, some of them perhaps straight and not destined to be. I just am very appreciative of 
the people who came before those people now that have this freedom and feel this safety in declaring themselves. And interesting about veterinarians, because I don't know in human medicine, is there a bias against being LGBT or transgender or something? Transgender is part of that acronym, but is there is there some sort of prejudice against it, do you think? Um, within the, the human health field or within yes. the human. Yeah. human. You know, I think there's there's certainly um it's not my specific area of expertise, but I know there's been quite a bit of research coming out showing that that folks who identify um as part of the LGBT community and it is really important to think of that. Um, you know, in one sense it encompasses folks who are outside of the the kind of social um socially accepted norm of um, relationships or gender identity, but it is really important, as you mentioned, to kind of tease out the fact that the uh, transgender community is, um, you know, in it faces a lot of uh, issues that, that don't come up when we're just talking about someone's sexual orientation. And there has been quite a bit of work showing that, that people who identify um, as gay, bisexual, transgender uh, tend to experience barriers in getting access to, um, to human health care. Um, you know, like I said, it's not my specific area of right. expertise, but, um, but it certainly plays an effect in um, not allowing the positive outcomes that we wish folks could have getting access to health care. And being themselves. And one of the things that Christine Kim just said, which was a total surprise to me, is that of, I think she said, of all the professions that there are, that veterinary students have the highest suicide rate. Now, I doubt it has to do with gender issues, but on the other hand, maybe it has something to do with it. I don't know, but that that's so depressing because many of us who grew up loving animals and all had this idea, I'll be a veterinarian, I'll be a veterinarian, didn't realize how much work that would be and how good you'd have to be at all kinds of things that you're probably lousy at, like, I don't know, math or engineering or physics or something. Um, I, I would, I've always thought anyone who became a vet granted with the hard work, was lucky. But I'm, apparently some people sort of cr- crumble under the, under the pressure of it. It's great to know that, that you have this bridge at University mm-hmm. of Wisconsin between veterinary medicine and social work. You're more interested in the public and being able to receive veterinary care if they don't have an address or a credit card or so forth. But it obviously mm-hmm. has to have, a, in a sense, a very positive or sensitizing effect on the students, no? Yeah, certainly. I mean, you're, you're really hitting kind of all of the pieces in what I see as a really holistic um, problem that our, our profession is facing and the public is facing in getting access to veterinary care. You know, you mentioned um, veterinary students having a higher rate of suicide. That's not specific to veterinary students. It's the profession as a whole. Oh, um, really, really struggles with, um, with depression. And, you know, there've been a number of high profile veterinarians in recent years who have, um, you know, who have committed suicide. It's, it's a, a, an issue that we're learning more and more about each day. And I think it comes from, uh, you know, a variety of different areas. Certainly the, uh, career of being a veterinarian is a very high pressure position to be in. And it, I mentioned before, it's a a relatively small profession, so it can at times be quite isolating. You know, we're put in a position where we're we're making life or death decisions for animals, um, and and really there's 
this strong bond that they have with their people who are attached to that. Uh, it's very emotional to be in. And, you know, at times there isn't really a good support network to help kind of debrief around some of those those problems and those concerns. Uh, and I'm certainly not doing the entire the entire problem justice in just kind of a, a 10 to 15 second summary. No, of course here. not. Of course not. But it is it is interesting to note that we shouldn't make us, we and as people who are outside of the profession make assumptions. You know, we should, maybe we should be more sensitive. Maybe we should think what it's like to be a vet who goes to vet school to relieve suffering and in, mm-hmm. in, in born, inbred in your teaching, training and, and exercise is to put animals to sleep and mm-hmm. witnessing the, the profound grief or maybe even the lack of profound grief of the owners of those animals. You were a feline-only practitioner, very near and dear to my heart. My show, Cat Chat, <laughs> salutes feline-only practitioners. I deeply, truly believe that everyone with a cat needs to take that cat to the vet at least once a year. And if it can be a, a clinic where there's no dog smell or sound, it really helps. Also, yes, feline-only practitioners seem to have more respect for the feline digestive system and uh, and other aspects, i.e. that they are obligate carnivores they're not small dogs and they're not small children they're you know they're 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 their true selves do you miss mm-hmm. that or do you or do you feel you have a greater impact now as an educator you know i really i i miss it but i feel very comfortable that i made the right decision in shifting my focus i think uh you know when you do kind of systems work and work with students and really look at some of these ethical questions that our profession is grappling with um, in real time and you're able to to have an effect and inspire a student and kind of see that um, light switch off when you know they're going to graduate and go on to make a difference in an area of veterinary medicine that's important to them. Uh, I mean, to me, that that's really the way that we're going to change some of these uh, preconceived notions about pet owners. We're going to shed some light on, um, you know, the, the issues with depression inside our own uh, veterinary community. We're going to be able to, to really come together as a, as a team to solve some of these issues. Do you, so feel I, I that, ser- do you feel that your Wise Cares program that collaborates between two different schools and a university, which I'm sure must involve all kinds of red tape and, and egos and I don't know what else, uh, the, 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 uh, the university environment is always depicted as having little fiefdoms and, you know, little territoriality and so forth. And you've made this wonderful bridge. Do you feel that, or do you know that other schools of either social work or veterinary um, education are working together, having seen what you're doing? Is, has it been become, I hope, some sort of a template? You know, the, um, the WISC CARES program that we're working with is really starting, I think, to to help some of those conversations move forward. We've only been providing services since 2014, so it's still a relatively new program. Um, there are a number of other schools that are, that are tackling other pieces of this issue, and I think in some respects that's really good because if we can each focus on kind of a different angle to attack this issue of veterinary medical care access, uh, we're just going to create more answers to address um, to address this issue. So I know um, the University of Tennessee actually has a social work uh, collaboration. They actually have a veterinary social work um, degree that that can be given to um, 
social work students as kind of an area of specialty. And that primarily, my understanding is that it focuses a lot on working with pet owners around end-of-life care and working with veterinary medical professionals to help uh, create some of that support system that, that has been identified as a need. Um, so that's, you know, one program that's getting at a piece of it. There's a, a program at Tufts that works out of a technical high school and provides uh, a low-cost primary care clinic to some different demographics in their community, which does, um, you know, a really neat job of working with high school students and veterinary students together to get them kind of uh, learning from each other and, and has a really interesting educational model there. Um, you know, we've got what's, what we're doing at Wisconsin. There's other community organizations that are doing pieces of this as well. There's a group um, up in Ottawa called Community Veterinary Outreach that has some wellness care for pet owners who are experiencing homelessness, and they'll have social workers and some human health care professionals at those events doing screenings. And, you know, I think the there's really this groundswell of programs getting at different pieces of this equation. And, and, you know, to me, that's that's going to be the effective way to move forward. What can we learn from each of these and kind of shift in the next iteration rather than trying to uh, just transplant a program from community to community? Because so much of it depends on the resources you have available um, and the community of, of providers in the area that you're trying to work out of. It sounds like a, a really a, a, a big shift, and, and to me, just hearing it, if I were on the brink of deciding you know, what to do with the rest of my life or where my education would go, it would sound mm-hmm. incredibly appealing because you would be working with pets, but you would be so heavily working with their humans in a way that would be profound. It wouldn't mm-hmm. just be discussing that itchy skin. You know, no problem. Mm-hmm. We all, we pet owners can get all in a fuss about itchy skin and what you should be feeding and where to get an allergy test. But how extraordinary to, to be able to give medical care to the cat living in a car with somebody. I mean, mm-hmm. that that's life-changing. That's really yeah. transformative. And you go home at the end of the day and I don't know what clinic you would work out of if that was your profession, but you wouldn't have mm-hmm. to worry so much about the overhead and how much RX diets you'd been able to, you know, promote to people that day, which I would think that for some people that would not be an appealing part of being a vet. They really want to help animals. And if they can help people at the same time, which is really what your what your work is about, I would mm-hmm. think that that would be doubly satisfying. You know, I think so. I'm certainly a, a biased party in thinking that this is a satisfying line of work. But, it, you know, if you look at um, even the, the hierarchy of needs model and, you know, it's not it, it is about helping the, the humans and the animals in one unit and, and using a holistic approach. But I think, you know, to take it just a couple of steps further, some, some just specific examples that, that folks don't necessarily think of right away. Um, one is just the, the effect you can have on a family's housing situation by doing something as simple as providing a rabies vaccine. Uh, because when you, wow. think of people, when you think of people who need to get into a new lease situation, if they're going to bring their pet with them, chances are that landlord is going to require paperwork that that animal has seen a veterinarian. And we know people will prioritize their pet's needs over themselves. We know that this happens. And if we're able to establish that relationship, provide that, that record of a vaccine and get that family into housing as one unit, well, that's an animal that hasn't 
needed to go to the animal shelter. And that's a family that hasn't needed to make the decision to give up the, the dog or cat that's been with them for years. That's it's, um, a one, it's a wonderful example. I mean, that the smallest thing can have huge ripple effect in a positive way. Dr. Yeah. Dr. William Giles, the work you're doing is extraordinary. We've run out of time. I hope that we'll stay in touch and that when things crop up, when issues happen, when you have an extraordinary student or an extraordinary patient, be it animal or human, that we'll have a chance to talk again. I salute the work you're doing, and I think it's um, they're very lucky to have you at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. They, the students, and, and they, your, your colleague educators. I think you're, you're pushing a lot of boundaries in a wonderful way. Well, thank you for letting me have a chance to talk about it. Absolutely. Take care. We'll talk again soon, I hope. We'll be right back after this quick word with Teresa Johnson in Kansas City. This show is brought to you with the generous support of Halo, holistic, natural cat and dog foods, which are made from real ingredients you can recognize. Halo uses real meat in their kibble, no rendered byproducts, chicken meal, or chemicals. And their new grain-free recipes, like Vigor, give you even more healthy choices for your pet's dinner, while Daily Greens brings vitamins and digestive enzymes into your dog's diet. Halo is a private company partly owned by Ellen DeGeneres, where they emphasize giving back by making donations to shelters through freekibble.com for pets awaiting a forever home. I am back with Teresa Johnson in Kansas City, who runs the Kansas City Pet Project, which is so successful at rescuing and adopting out dogs and cats that the Petco Foundation has given them a grant and thinks the world of them and of you, Teresa Johnson. So congratulations and welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties Too. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Well, so tell a little bit about how you came to be, how your pet project came to be. I, I, did you what, were things in disarray in Kansas City at some point? So in in Kansas City, the municipal shelter uh, was really and and for many years was a rundown, poorly managed, forty year old uh, high kill shelter, and. The citizens of Kansas City really wanted something different and demanded that uh, the municipal shelter begin to try to save more animals. And so um, a very small group of citizens in Kansas City formed the Kansas City Pet Project solely for the ability to respond to an RFP from the city um, when the city finally decided they would go out to bid to see if they could find someone else to run the shelter for them. And so the contract was awarded to the Kansas City Pet Project, thankfully. And so we took off uh, January 1 of 2012. And who were you? Who were you guys? Who were you people who said, oh, we'll take on a huge problem and fix it? I mean, you know, everyone thinks, oh, it's horrible. All these animals are being killed and they're in disgusting conditions and there's no behavior modification and there's probably not even any exercise. It seems like a daunting task. Who were these do-gooders? Who were these secret angels? So just a small group of citizens that thought we, we can't do worse. We can't oh, do more than so what was dear. already happening. Really? So we can we know that we can save more just by trying a little bit. Oh, and wow. so when we went in, um, you know, we are a group of individuals who are we are not afraid to think outside the box. Our motto here at the Kansas City Pet Project is solutions, not excuses. 
Love it. Oh, my God. You, they could use a little of your your moxie there in Washington, D.C. and other places. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So you just thought there has to be a better way. And we don't necessarily Absolutely. even know it, but we're going to find it. We're going to create it. We're going to make it. How does, how does, what does thinking outside the box look like when you're taking over a rundown, icky shelter full of animals who are all basically on death row to some extent? Right. And especially when we're the city shelter. And so we're a full open admission shelter, right. which means that citizens in Kansas City, Missouri, which we serve a population of about half a million people here, um, that citizens could come and just drop off unwanted pets. Uh, and also all the animal control officers uh, bring stray and unwanted pets here. So um, currently we take in 10,000 animals a year Ooh, baby. in a very, in a very wow. uh, small 40 plus year old building. So um, we had to be very creative in figuring out how we were going to save lives. And so some of those things are we opened off-site adoption centers. Um, we have lots of great adoption specials. We really engaged our community. So we got um, a lot of volunteers involved. We got um, businesses, really our community's help because, you know, people want a shelter in their city to be able to save lives. And so people wanted this to happen. They wanted a no-kill community. And so I think we had some some great success in, in people wanting to back a group who was trying to do better for animals. And was there municipal money that was given that was already allotted to the, to the shelter? So we were able to negotiate. We have a, a flat fee uh, for services that the city provides to us. It nowhere near covers the cost right. that it takes to save animals when you're actually trying to save animals. Right. And so um, we have to do a lot of private fundraising. We're a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and we do a lot of fundraising in the community um, to help us cover the costs of uh, we get a lot of injured and ill animals in um, that need additional medical uh, treatments before they can be placed up for adoption. And so a lot of donations go to help us uh, get all those guys ready for adoption. One of the things I, I would like to talk about, I've brought it up numerous times over the years on this show, but I want to talk about it again, the issue of no kill. I think it's really important that people hear this over and over. I've, I've had people when I was bringing the dog film festival somewhere or talking about it, Oh, well, you were going to work with a shelter that's not a no-kill shelter. Well, somebody has to deal with the, the hard-to-place or impossible-to-place or dangerous-to-society dogs. It's all very nice that there are shelters and rescues that can handpick and cherry-pick from a county shelter the dogs that are most adoptable, that have the least problems, and that's what a lot of rescues and shelters do, and that's swell. But I'd like to talk a little bit about this uh, this loaded term, no-kill, as if the people that are part of a shelter in which euthanasia is practiced are somehow animal killers and don't have the same love or respect for animals that those do in a shelter where they've taken the animals that eventually are pretty much guaranteed of being adopted out. Yeah, absolutely. We knew that when we took over, we wanted to, and, and our mission is to end the, the euthanizing of healthy and treatable animals. And we wanted to do that by employing the most innovative, innovative and effective sheltering and animal control policy. Right. So right. we are an open admission shelter, um, which means that you do get animals in that are 
um, too ill or too severely injured, um, and euthanasia is um, the best uh, course of action for those in those animals that are suffering. Or we also do uh, get in animals that are just not safe to place in the Correct. community. Correct. And so that is, um, as a no-kill shelter, that means we want to find positive outcomes for 90% or more of all of the animals that come in and that we count them all, not just what we would consider right. placeable animals right. it's all. And so currently our live release rate uh, for all animals leaving the organization is nearly 94% that's, of 10,000 animals a year. That's truly incredible because there have to be lots of animals who are a challenge, whether it's their broken pelvis or the fact that they lunge at other dogs and want to eat them alive. I mean, there <laughs> are those dogs, let me tell you, for sure. I, I think it's amazing. I, I've been on your website. It's a wonderful website. And what I find, and I'm wondering if that's just who you happen to have for adoption now, it looks like 94%, if not higher, pit bulls. Is that the situation? I thought that was more of a uh, for an impoverished area or an inner city area where pit bulls have been indiscriminately allowed to breed or bred often for nefarious purposes. And then luckily they wind up in the shelter and in a, a different kind of home. But are pit bulls the predominant um, animal that you have? Um, I would say if you look at in our shelter that you would say that the majority of the dogs here are pit bull type dogs, right. um, a blocky head yep. uh, pit bull type dog. Um, what we really find is that uh, really only about 25% or so of the dogs that come in to our system are actually what we would consider a pit bull type dog, um, but they stay longer ah. and they stay longer because we have breed specific yep. Uh, yep. bands around uh, the community, not in Kansas City, but there are plenty of cities surrounding Kansas City that still have um, breed bands. And so it causes... Um, us to have a smaller population I of individuals see. that can adopt. And so, but I would say that, yes, we do have a lot of, of pit bull type dogs, but frankly, they're wonderful dogs and we get them adopted. Yes, I'm sure you do because 94% means 94% <laughs> of them get a, a great home. But I, I, is there, is there, is there a lot of poverty in Kansas City? I've always looked at Kansas City being in the pet industry as what's called in the industry the Kansas City Corridor. Many of major companies and PR firms in the pet world are based in Kansas City. So I have imagined it, perhaps in ignorance, as being a thriving metropolis that's uh, very well healed, well off, uh, economically privileged. Is that, is that a, a misconception? Oh, I would say that we're just as a lot of other big cities that um, we have areas that are, you know, the thriving metropolis. And, and we also have, you know, a lot of inner city poverty Yes. Um, and areas in our community that are very challenged, especially for um, we call them veterinary deserts where yes. there are places that uh, individuals that live here do not have access to low-cost veterinary care, uh, low-cost spay and neuter services. And so um, we work with a lot of other groups in town. Um, we don't have a public veterinary clinic, but we work with spay neuter clinics, and we also provide a lot of resources um, and education for people um, that may not have all the resources they need to, to properly care for their pets. 
which I would think in the big picture of any city is so vital. Because if you can, obviously everybody deserves and many of them want to have pets in their life. They don't necessarily know how to keep them from procreating. And of course, one of the problems is if you have one dog and you only want one dog and you suddenly have a litter of eight, you know, it becomes an exponential problem. So if spay neuter, if you're able to make it available and educate about why it's desirable, in the end, you have happier people because they get to have the pets they need and keep them healthy and not more pets than what they can than what there are homes for. Right, right. And we also do, as part of our adoption process, we do a lot of educating um, and training um, for dogs, trying to help uh, make a good match up front so that those adoptions stick. And we also try to help a lot of dogs that come in. We see dogs come in that are uh, under-socialized or have not learned to play with other dogs appropriately. And so we have quite a few trainers on our staff um, that work a lot with dogs that come in that may not have had much in the way of of training in the past. And so we we actually have a new program right now, our class program. It's canine life and social skills. And so we're teaching a lot of dogs in our shelter now the skills that they need to be successful in a new home. Sit, go to your kennel, wait at the door. Wow. Um, you know, really good skills that people are going to come to a shelter get a dog that's gone through these programs and, oh my gosh, it's going to be a fantastic member of the family. Because that's more skills than most of the people listening their dogs have. It's like, do you <laughs> mind going to... I'm oh, bring my dog and have don't, it. Don't go to the crate. I'm sorry, honey. I didn't mean to ask you to go to the crate. Do whatever you want. It's okay. Jump on the, you know, <laughs> most of us are just way wimpy about that when in fact it does make a happier dog that has parameters and, and, and some obedience. So they know, you know, what the, the limits are for certain behaviors. That's really terrific. Has Amy Sadler ever visited with her dogs playing for life? This extraordinary work that she does across the country where she gets all of a, almost all of the population out in a big play yard together. Absolutely. We have that program here at our shelter. Wow. Yes. We implemented the, uh, the playing for life program. We built, uh, we had volunteers and uh, members of the community raise funds. We built nine large play yards and we implemented the canine play group program. So every day at our shelter, we rotate nearly a hundred dogs out into play groups every day. Wow. Um, And that is how we learn a lot about their behavior is through our play group program. So we know when people come in and say, um, I'm looking for a dog that might be good with my other dog at home. Right. We know more about those dogs' um, personalities and what kinds of play styles they have and can make a better match for adopters. Wow, that is just fantastic. It's very exciting to me. I was Amy's first uh, dog training client ever back in California when we both lived there. And it's, it's extraordinary to see how she has evolved into this really life-changing thought leader in in terms of sheltering and and how animals in shelters can live a better life there and then live a better better life once they're adopted out. It's a shame that more people that already own animals don't realize the importance of dogs being able to play together and, you know, be dogs. And I think that that would give a lot more pleasure to the dogs and a lot more relaxation to people if they could... If they could watch what happens in a place like the Kansas City Pet Project and watch animals that at the very first moment they're let out, you go, oh, my God, what's going to happen next? And you're like, oh, cool, look at that, wrestling and running and 
chasing and tugging, all the things it's that dogs so really true. need, right? It's so true. And we find that after playgroups happen, and sometimes we do playgroups twice a day, but when playgroups happen in the mornings, um, the dogs will come back into the shelter and they will actually be calm and quiet in their kennels because yes. they're tired. We tell uh, volunteers that uh, a 20 minutes, so 20 minutes in a play group with dogs playing with other dogs is the equivalent mentally and physically to them of a two hour walk with a volunteer. Yep. I totally believe that they're, they're emotionally satisfied. They aren't just exhausted. They're satisfied. They've gotten some of what they need. I, th I think what you're doing is extraordinary, Teresa, because to have those notes on dogs and to have volunteers and staff members willing to take the time, able to take the time to pay attention to who those dogs really are, keep notes, write it down, so that when somebody comes and wants to add a dog to their life, th there's information about them that is, as you said, it's invaluable. You don't want them right. to go home with a dog and have a bad moment and have them immediately give up when, in fact, there may just be a rocky first meeting and things may go swimmingly after that if, if they're given the confidence to know that dog's done great in a play yard with other 75-pound dogs coming at them full tilt, right? Absolutely. And, you know, if you're looking for a dog that you want to run with, you know, we want to find you that kind of, of dog that has that kind of personality. If you're looking for a dog that you want to have just as a couch potato, um, just to hang out with you at home, you know, we're not going to find you a dog that's got a, you know, really rough and rowdy uh, play style. We want to find a dog that's going to be kind of the gentle and dainty Yes, and I have to say that that really is one of the great benefits of adopting versus purchasing a puppy because you have no idea what that puppy's personality will really become. The great breeders, they take notes. They watch those puppies from birth. They take notes. They have it written down, and they know up until seven and a half weeks, but a lot more happens. And as they evolve into their full energy and personality, it's like, whoa, my little Wanda, thank God I already got a really high drive one because what would I possibly do with this little <laughs> lunatic otherwise? So be careful what you wish for, folks. But by adopting and from, from a shelter which does this kind of, of uh, homework the way the Kansas City Pet Project does, you're going to find a match that will be made in heaven. Teresa, thank you so much for all you're doing. I hope to someday bring the Dog Film Festival to Kansas City and make a big fuss over you and all of your adopters and all of those yet to be adopted. We would love that. Thank you so much for having me on today. It's a pleasure. You take care. Lots of adoptions in your future. Bye-bye. Thank you all so much for listening. Kiss your kitties and hug your pooches, and we will talk again next week. Bye for now. 